0: According to the scriptures, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Uh, there's a, a term in communication and leadership theory called the elevator pitch, and the idea behind the elevator pitch is that individuals in an organization, any organization, it could be a sports team, a family, a business, a neighborhood a church, that individuals that belong to organizations will only be as effective as they could be, and the organization they're part of will only be as effective as it could be if the individuals can think through, articulate in 60 seconds or less what the organization is and what it's trying to do. About the, the average length of time of an elevator ride. It's the elevator pitch. Well, Here's my elevator pitch for Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a group of believers in Jesus Christ from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, united by our faith in Christ, and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually, based especially by focusing on the basics of Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and world missions. you need to know something like that because sooner or later, if you go to a church like Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, somebody's going to say, a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian, or your grandmother's going to say, why don't you go to a regular church? Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, what's that? Well, grandma, let me tell you. And then you give grandma the elevator pitch. Now, where do we get the elevator pitch? Uh, we get it from Scripture, and every year we try to review basically the, the game plan for the church. The neat thing about uh, our elevator pitch, our basic philosophy, is we kind of look like that, in that we're a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds Church of the Nazarene, Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, and now most of us see ourselves as much as TBFers as anything else. That's the way God sees His church, and that's the way this church functions as a dichotomy of that. Uh, and you know I know you've seen this diagram many times. I said recently, I actually misspoke, and I need to correct it. Uh, I said I came up with that diagram all by myself, uh, and what I meant was just drawing the cross and the resurrection for the gospel, and then drawing the ovals that overlap. And I didn't, I haven't seen anybody else do that, and I I did it and do it a lot, especially when I had an overhead projector. But it's actually David Yeager who actually did this graphic for me. So. If you like the graphic, uh, he did that. So, and, it, and he didn't uh, chastise me for not mentioning it. But kind of after that message, I kind of went back there and gave him the microphone. And I said, "Boom!" You know, sorry. When I said I did that diagram, I didn't mean I did the PowerPoint slide. So, we believe in truth in advertising right here too. So, you know, the thing that that we're, we center on is ultimately the gospel of Christ, regardless of our doctrinal distinctives or distinctive backgrounds. And we just read what Paul. Uh, says about the gospel in a nutshell. is the essential truth that uh, Christ died for our sins and rose again. Uh, Martin Luther said that the whole gospel is found in John 3.16, one verse. God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of sinful people, righteous unbelievers and er, unrighteous unbelievers, religious unbelievers and er, irreligious unbelievers. God loved the world so much he gave his Son, second person of the Trinity, who's not the author but the active agent, the distinct person of salvation, incarnation, substitutionary atoning, sacrificial death, resurrection, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The reason that Christ is the source of salvation is because he's the God-man Savior and everything that could keep Eric Ward out of heaven uh, morally, Jesus Christ died and paid for, or like I Uh, enjoy saying, because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And, And he himself in John 6 tells a crowd in Jerusalem, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. But although Christ died for our sins, he's not dead anymore. And a dead Savior couldn't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can. And we receive the benefits of his death and we receive the gift of salvation through faith. Faith is not promising to be better or try harder. It's active, receptive trust. It's not meritorious. The thief on the cross, better known as the terrorist on the cross, says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Salvation would have to be totally of grace for that kind of request to get the response Jesus gave it. Do you remember what Jesus said to the terrorist on the cross? Today you're going to be with me in paradise, right? So that's where we start, and that's where we're centered. But TBF is a, a group of believers in Jesus Christ who believe. And yeah, Tabor, thank you for. I've heard you guys practice that song, but I don't. Have we sung that before in worship? Maybe, maybe a couple of times. Uh, it's really good. I like it. And, uh, you know, the, the party line now, if you read all the church growth magazines, is it's basically, you know, you're, you're not a shepherd, you're a CEO, and you've got to get market share. So you got to find out what people want, and we can tell you people don't want in-depth Bible study or doctrine. They don't want that. Nobody under 40 will listen to you talk about it. So you got to get whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Well, uh, we don't do that. I'm not. I'm not uh, upset about that. Except I'm. I'm sorry that people want to kind of turn us into a civic club, and we're not. You know, praise God for the civic clubs, but we've got a distinctive agenda. And last time I checked, the only thing Jesus specifically said he was going to build on the earth between the first and second comings was what? His church, right? Not the Boys Club or or the Red Cross or other wonderful organization. So today we're going to look at the pods of TBF consistent with all of that. One purpose, two objectives, five goals or functions. And we'll show you how we get that from the New Testament. But first, let's start with the word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us a game plan. As individual believers, you tell us to trust and obey, uh, to abide in Christ, uh, to feed our faith and doubt our doubts, and just keep moving one step at a time. Uh, As a church, I believe that you give us some real clear principles in the New Testament. And I think that uh, every good church would say, yeah, basically the kind of Uh, Matthew 28, Ephesians 4, Acts 2 kind of thing is kind of what we're trying to do. Uh, But we want to have a real clear conception of what the target is, so maybe we have a better chance of hitting it. And I pray that would be what comes across today. Uh, I know several of these uh, uh, benighted saints in this room have heard me go over this content at least uh, 26 times now. (laughs) So I pray for... uh, some spiritual rut remover on the speaker and on the listeners and make this make this fresh and as exciting as it should be in our hearts. Other people are, are seeing this for the first time, and I hope this can clarify kind of what we're trying to do, and you'd help all of us try harder to do it <laughs> in this new year you're giving us. And on this first day of the week, we don't want to take that for granted. Life on earth is a gift, and it's very temporary. Uh, the first significant thing we're doing on the first day of this new week you're giving us is gathering, and Christians all over the city and country and world are doing it as well, in the name of Jesus Christ, to to fellowship and worship and to to pray and and now to think through your truth, and I pray you'd be glorified in that. Uh, pray, Father, for those who protect and serve us, our active military. Our police officers, peace officers, I should say, our firefighters, we thank you for their service and their work, and uh, we don't want to ever take them for granted. And we pray special direction and empowerment and sense of calling for those who are believers in those, in those very important roles. Uh, thank you for each one who's here today. Thank you for the beautiful campus we have all over the buildings today. We pray Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, our our pogs we're going to review are kind of like our, our game plan uh, for a football game. And speaking of football, one of my favorite kind of comedy lists is this one. Some of you have heard it before. Uh, five football terms that have special meanings at TBF. Okay, so watch this, Henry. These are football terms, but they have special meanings here. Illegal motion is when TBFers get mad, go home right after the call to worship. Don't leave. Give us another chance, okay? That'd be illegal most. Interference when a TBF'er breaks in the line at the coffee pot or at the donut uh, counter. End end around. I used to run a play called end around. That's what TBF nursery workers do in the process of changing dirty diapers. That's the end around. Two minute warning. Uh, when the TBF elder board all frown at Pastor Brad after first-hour teaching time has gone on for more than one hour. That'd be the two-minute warning. And then finally, the extra point, it's my favorite one. Extra point is what Pastor Brad crams into the end of his first-hour messages even after he receives a (laughs) two-minute warning. (laughs) Uh, This month we're doing some special messages. Last week we looked at what we don't do does define us. Today, we're going to look at the POGs of TBF, also known as 2015. Here we come. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be discussing cussing. Really important truth, really important truth for teenagers because your culture is dominated with theological terms used out of context and references to sexuality and excretion that ought to be private. So we're going to analyze what cussing is, what scripture says about it, and give you some good reasons not to do it. Or to stop doing it. If that's the way you punctuate your sentences. Now, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks we're going to summarize the twenty-six major events in the life of Christ from the four canonical Gospels in alphabetical order. Sean, angels announce the pregnancy, uh, birth in Bethlehem, carpentry career, dove descends at the baptism, enemy entices the temptation, and we'll go on. And then, Lord willing, we'll start. A, we'll be starting a new uh, series on the Book of Acts in uh, the first Sunday of February, which is actually February 1st. So that's where we're headed. But Let's talk about the POGs of TBF. POG stands for what? Purpose, Objectives, and Goals. And I want you to know where we get these from Scripture. And again, even if churches don't have anything like this uh, presentation or a booklet on this or any writing on this, this is basically what most good churches are trying to do. I'm not saying we've got to unique franchise on this at all. But, uh, yeah, our purpose is to make disciples. We're not trying to make disciples of Janet Digg, although you can learn a lot about discipleship by hanging out with Janet Digg. We're not trying to make disciples of Steve Skinner. You can learn a lot about discipleship by getting to know Steve Skinner. We're, we're, we're trying to make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of the pastor or the elder board. So that's important. Two major objectives. When the church is gathered, let's focus on edification of believers. So when the church is scattered, which is most of the week, believers can live salt and light, contagious Christianity at Fort Sill, at Halliburton, at Cameron University, at Duncan Middle School, etc. And then our goals or our functions are the things the apostles made sure happened in the very first church in Jerusalem, which was, of course, Jerusalem Bible Fellowship, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so those are the passages, and those are the actual uh, purposes, objectives, and goals in general. Okay. Let's look at our passages. Look at Matthew 28. I like to say that, uh, Matthew, uh, has a surprise ending because the most Jewish of the biblical gospels has this wonderful, uh, universal great commission to the whole world. The Jewish Messiah is in fact the savior of the world. And, um, uh, In his resurrected form between the resurrection of Easter and the ascension, during that 40-day period, Jesus interacts with his disciples and others, and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age lady comes to the pastor and says, you need to pray for me. I'm terrified about something i got to go do. And I said, uh, what are you terrified about? Well, my son lives in California. He's bought me an airplane ticket to go to California, and I'm terrified of flying. And I said, hey, you know, the, we'll pray about it, but the Lord will be with you, and, and uh, he's, he's going to take care of you. And she cited this verse, and she said, no, all he said was, lo, I'll be with you. But I'm going to go like 50,000 feet to California so so you gotta read it right. Uh, you read all of that, and it's very important and stuff, but when you actually diagram it in the original language, there's only one verb. There's only one command in the Great Commission, and it's make disciples. Those are followed by a work with three participles. Now, I'm not gonna embarrass Ken, cause, you know, he's a, an expert on all things grammatical, but he would tell you that participles are verbal adjectives. They're just verbals that help you modify verbal statements. And there are three participles of means that are attached to this command. Make disciples by going. What do we go with? We go with the gospel. By baptizing people who believe the gospel, not because you've got to be water baptized to be saved, but it's a way to proclaim your faith. And in the early church, it was the first way, the foundational way new believers Identified with the church and with Christ and proclaim their faith. And then by teaching all the things I'm going to command you, and I think the Lord includes the New Testament content as He's staying, saying that kind of a Gnostic uh, 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 statement there. Now I've got asterisks there to remind me that by teaching Scripture, we're not just saying, well, this is an aorist tense and this is an ep exegetical chi, and, and when you walk away and say, wow, you know, if I spoke Greek, maybe it would be helpful. I think, to me, every great preacher and every wannabe great preacher like me does two things for you. We open up the text and we try to explain what the text means in context. We'll call that interpretation. And then we suggest implications or applications. You go from what does this text mean, interpretation, exposition, to what does this text mean to me or to Ray Ward or to Julie Demerson or Debbie McCoy. That's application. So for me, rather than being amazed by homiletical skill, if you can read through passages I've tried to teach and understand basically in your Bible what they mean and know what some of the obvious implications are to apply to take with you to school on Monday morning, then I have done my job. And I think that's what teaching really is as opposed to just exhorting and having kind of a uh, motivational approach to just trying to have a pep rally on the one hand or just, going into all the minutiae, it's just you know words on a page. I think we need a little bit of both, and that's the way Jesus taught. I think that's the way we ought to teach. So that's our basic overarching umbrella purpose is to make disciples, which is a process, not just decisions, but disciples. It's a long, lifelong process. So you've got to hear and believe the gospel. You need to be identified with Christ and his church, and you need to be in and under the Scripture. That's the first major passage. That's uh, the basis of our overall purpose. Let's look at Ephesians 4. We're going from purpose to our two major objectives. How how does making discipleship look like in a New Testament church context? Well, in Ephesians 4, you have the Apostle Paul who planted and nurtured a large number of churches. And here he kind of has a summary statement of how the church should work. Ephesians 4 11 through 16, it's all about edification of the saints. The Bible never calls unbelievers to go to church. It calls the church to go out into the world, right? So, of course, we're going to share the gospel, but uh, the primary focus of the Lord's Day is edifying saints, so they'll be uh, fed and motivated to go out and live a contagious Christian life. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Let's read the passage, Ephesians 4. 11 through 16, which says, and he, God the Holy Spirit, gave some gifted, called people to be apostles and some to be prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers. I'm convinced apostles, capital A, and prophets, capital P, were a foundational gift given to the first generation church. Those people kept the church going, got it going, and wrote the New Testament for us Uh, other ongoing gifts are myriad, but he focuses on just two here. He lists a whole bunch of them in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not unaware of the other ones. but talking about at the core of the function of the church, which is based on the foundation of Christ's cornerstone and the apostles and the first century prophets. We've got evangelists who encourage us to share the faith and pastor teachers who teach us what we believe about our faith. So he's given certain gifted believers to do what? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, and the word saint in New Testament refers to every believer, not just to a certain subset who've been canonized. For the equipping of the saints, for Katie Davis and uh, uh, Maxine Blystone and uh, Carla Buchanan and Jack Smith, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ, right thing, right way. Now, you know, a lot of Americans think we we pay clergymen to do the work of service and we watch and and pay them if they do it well, but this is saying that even those who might be called to vocational ministry, evangelists, pastors, teachers, aren't so much to do all the work of the ministry as they are to organize an environment where everybody gets involved for the equipping of every individual for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ and here's some job security for me. We're supposed to keep doing that until we all attain the unity of the faith, which doesn't happen until after the second advent. So uh, Bible teachers have some good uh, job security there. Uh, The knowledge of the Son of God to a mature individual to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, so we're building up the body. As a result, we're not going to freak out when Newsweek has a cover story about uh, everything you heard about the Bible is wrong if you didn't get the, the email I sent out last week or you want some more information, I've got a one page uh, sheet with two PowerPoint slides. The first one has the Newsweek cover that kind of uh, uh, slanders scripture and Bible believing Christians. And then at the bottom of that first slide, I've got a, a web address you can go to get an exhaustive breakdown of that from our perspective. Then the second slide on that sheet, an 8.5 by 11 sheet, has the same newsweek cover uh except instead of having a bible i kind of superimposed the term the quran and i said newsweek will never run an issue with this cover uh, don't believe the quran the quran is all bunk you know you know why kyleen newsweek will never do that you think they you think they're all muslims running newsweek they're all skeptics but probably all skeptical they won't do it for obvious reasons right so we're getting to the point where you can't really make fun of or criticize anybody for various reasons except for evangelical preachers, and I'm getting very, very defensive about that. Uh, yeah, so let me keep reading the passage there. I got so excited. So as a result, we're not supposed to be immature and tossed by every wind of doctrine every time Newsweek says they don't believe the Bible, shouldn't cause a, a huge crisis for you. What do you expect? You know, you can't play by their rules out there anymore. Uh, but speaking the truth in love, we, not just the pastors, but all of us are to grow up into all aspects in our character to become more like Christ, from whom the whole body, each individual piece, you know, Amanda Birch and Wolfgang Dieg and uh, Andrew Bowers and Brad McCoy, uh, according to the proper work of each individual part, we've all got different gifts and abilities, et cetera, but we've got places we can plug in and help, causes the growth of the body for the building of it. Of itself in love. So we got one overall purpose: make disciples. Our, our basic objective is when we gather, let's focus on Ephesians 4, let's edify believers uh, so that out in the world we can actually live a credible, consistent, Christ-honoring Christian life. Now, go to Acts 2. If we think about our purposes or really their ongoing functions, um, <clears throat> I love Acts 2, and um, I'll give you the short version of the context here. Uh, we've got the death of Christ, right, Pat? And then three days later, the resurrection. And then 40 days after that, the ascension. Now, the, the events of Acts 2 take place 10 days after that, 10 days after the ascension. So we're very close to the seminal uh, events of uh, of the gospel, the death, resurrection of Christ. A couple months before this, we're in the city of Jerusalem, we've got the apostles, we've got 12 apostles. Now, we were down to 11 when Judas defected, right? But they fixed the problem, maybe prematurely by drawing straws, and we've got Matthias as the 12 apostles. So we've got 12 apostles who've heard the Great Commission, it's ringing in their ears, and now Peter preaches 3,000 people come to faith, and now you've got the very first Christian church in the New Testament era, and the question is, Scott, what do you do with them? What, what did the apostles do with the first church? You've got 3,000 new Messianic believers here. They're all Jewish believers, all there uh, in Jerusalem. They came to faith. They believe Yeshua is Hamashiach, Jesus is the Messiah. They received salvation. What do you do with them? Uh, they don't have a coffee pot. They don't have a PowerPoint. Uh they don't necessarily have dancing elephants to draw a crowd. Here's what they did. Look at verse 42. And they, the apostles and the 3,000 baby believers in the first church in Jerusalem, were continually devoting themselves to, one, the apostles' doctrine. That's Today we call that Bible study. Number two, to fellowship. That's the word koinonia. It means to have a, a sharing, an overlap. And I always say, it's remarkable, hey, Glenda, they're having fellowship hundreds of years before the invention of the coffee machine or air conditioning or heating or anything. But to me, fellowship is interaction between believers that's mutually edifying. So they're interacting uh, with or without the coffee pot. Uh, To the breaking of bread, as Tommy knows, uh, the breaking of bread is like a technical term in the New Testament for the Lord's Supper, which is the highest form of worship. They weren't just having meals together, they were having the Lord's meal together at the end of their service, and also then to prayer, which is actually plural in the original prayers. Everybody's praying. So the four things that the apostles thought should happen so they could do Ephesians 4, as it were, in the church meetings was Bible study. What happens in Bible study, Wanda? God speaks to us through his word. That's pretty cool. Fellowship, we commune with other believers Nurturing them to love and good works. Worship, what do we do in worship, Ray? We're communing with God. And in prayers, we speak to God. Now, any good Southern Baptist, for that matter, any good Dallas Seminary graduate, I would say, where's the evangelism? You know, aren't we supposed to share the faith? Yeah, well, that comes, it's related, but it's not in verse 42. When they got together, they devoted themselves to four things, and you get some descriptions of the dynamics of people's lives as a living out the Christian faith, going to a church that focuses on those things. But drop down to verse 47. Here's where you see the evangelism. It's happening not so much within the walls of the church, but outside in the real world. Not necessarily on Sunday morning as much as Monday morning and even prom night. Uh, the people involved in the, the church in Jerusalem with the apostles as their leaders were praising God, having favor with all the people because they're going to work with a great attitude, they're uh, uh fair... Effort for their paycheck. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Not just on Sunday, but day by day, those were being saved because they're living contagious Christian lifestyles, living uh, uh, lifestyles with credibility. And people saying, hey, what's the deal about Jerusalem Bible Fellowship? Are you guys rejecting Judaism? No, we're embracing Judaism, man. Salvation is of the Jews. You haven't heard about Yeshua? He is the Messiah, you know? That kind of thing. So one cool thing about the cussing message next week is, you know, somebody like Eric, who's a bright, good-looking, hard-working guy, as he works his way eventually to become CEO of Marathon Oil, as I'm sure will happen. You are a tither, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But, uh, you know, he doesn't have to be a goody two-shoes. If he just goes to all those board meetings, of smoke-filled rooms, that are fully ventilated now because of OSHA, you know. But uh, he just doesn't. If he just doesn't cuss to punctuate his sentences, people are going to notice he's different. That's all it takes in our culture anymore. That and don't be talking about how many girlfriends you have or want or uh, that kind of thing. If you're actually committed to your wife and family and you don't cuss, people are going to say. Well, in, in a lot of contexts I'm in. Uh, uh, People think, what's wrong with him? You know, but uh, they eventually see you're different. But now, this is my original diagram I came up with like 26 years ago on a simple paint program, uh, just to kind of tell you what we're trying to do. And uh, Bill Dickinson, who was like the George Washington TBF, when I showed him this diagram, he said, and he was he was prone to hyperbole, but he said, "Brad, that's exactly what we were thinking about when we started this thing." So, so I felt pretty good about that. Uh, we're trying to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When the church is gathered, let's focus on the stuff Acts 2 says they focused on, on top of other stuff. So we're not so much a lighthouse, but more of a greenhouse. And the idea is we focus on edification when we gather so we can do evangelism uh, with relevance and credibility when we're not gathered. And the idea is the church gathered motivates us to be growing spiritually. We grow spiritually. We live it. We hopefully share it when the church is scattered, and it becomes like a spiritual Krebs cycle. And I know some of you who took biology and you didn't like it, uh, the Krebs cycle, you know, it kind of scares you. But uh, uh, I was a biology major at one point, and uh, they told us, you've got to understand this thing. So I was just terrified. So I memorized the whole Krebs cycle. If you want me to, I can write it down for you sometime, but not now. Now, let's move from purpose... Objectives and Goals, to talk about personality. Last week we talked about uh, some of the things we don't do defines us. We talked about our unique kind of culture as a church. Um, and I cited St. Augustine, who said about the church at large and individual local churches uh, when he was doing his thing, uh, here's the way we work. In the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. And in all things, we have charity or love. And so let's talk about that. What are the essentials? I would say the essentials, or a lot of times I'll call them the AIMS as an acronym, A-I-M, Absolute irreducible Minimum, right? Now, if you don't like acronyms, there's actually an organization for you to join that Ray Ward told me about. It's the American, it's the A-A-A-A. It's the American Association Against Acronyms. So for those of you who don't like acronyms, that's the one for you. But when I talk about the essentials, the aims, to me that's exactly the same thing. And I would say when you look at what the essentials that Christians for 2,000 years have affirmed as far as belief and behavior, you've got something I call the Super 7 for belief and something I'd say the Terrific 2 plus a New Testament understanding of the Ten Commandments. So that's what the essentials are. When you look at those Super 7 things... It's really beautiful when you when you realize that they move too logically and away from the cross and the resurrection. The essentials are who God is, generally, triune, personal, his attributes. We've talked about that many times. We'll continue talking about that. Specifically, who Jesus Christ is, the incarnation of God, the second person of the Trinity, God made flesh. Who we are, we're all GIs. Not just David and, and Matt. We're all GIs. We're guilty with a complete inability to earn our own salvation. Uh, the fourth essential truth claim of the of the Scripture of Christianity is what Christ has done: perfect life, atoning sacrificial death, literal bodily supernatural resurrection. None of which you can do in a laboratory. It's a miracle. What? Boom. Didn't know I had that kind of power. Uh what we must do to access what Christ has done. What do we do? For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What Christ will do as far as the history, future, what's going to happen? Literal second advent. That's the absolute irreducible minimum. And then what the Bible is, the Word of God written. When you look at that, I'm into something for a, a, in biblical literature, and ancient literature called chiasm, where you work to and away from a sinner. And it's that's what you got here. It's incredible. Who God is, generally who Christ is, specifically who we are, what Christ did. There's your sinner. Move back away. Uh, what we must do. You see how that third one lines up with the third from the last one. Who we are, what we must do. Second one, who Christ is, who Christ, what Christ will do, who God is, word of God. Pretty neat. When I saw that work out, I said, wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like a snowflake. Let me share what that means. And I apologize about the poor quality of the graphic here. But, you know, these are the three basic ways Christians understand Bible prophecy, okay? The tales aren't important right now. But they're completely different in a lot of ways. And some of these people, when they debate each other, forget we're all brothers and that we basically are saying the same things about the most important thing. But even though those three diagrams are very dissimilar, they have some real similarities. Uh, we're standing here somewhere in the church age. We're believers in the death and resurrection of Christ, and we trusted Him as Savior. And we all, look at that Steve Skinner, pre-, post-, ah, all affirm a literal second advent. That's the absolute irreducible minimal. And we all believe that God's not done yet. The universe is broken. It's botched up. Horrible things happen all the time, Okay. Uh, we're all terminal. The death rate's 100%. God didn't make it that way. It's broken. He's going to fix it. It's going to get fixed out here. And all Christians affirm the benefits and the blessings of the person of Jesus Christ and His first coming, literal second advent, and eventually we're going to get to a place in God's program where we're not going to have uh, child molesters or cancer or murderers or uh, anything else that we don't like and we shouldn't be doing in this world. Okay? So that's basically the, the truth glue that holds us together. Now let's move from belief to behavior. I think the absolute irreducible minimum of what the Bible teaches about Christian behavior is summed up in the Terrific Two and the Ten Commandments from a New Testament perspective. Uh, Jesus is asked, what's the upshot of Scripture from an ethical, behavioral point of view? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as yourself, not to be saved but as a, an effect of your relationship with God through faith. And so it's very important. One thing I stress a lot, because I hear a lot of people, you probably heard on the radio and written books, that overlap these sometimes. But in God's mind, faith and works are related, but they're distinct. There's no overlap. Saving faith is an empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. But when we receive the merits of Christ, He doesn't just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card, Ray. He gives us new capacity to know and serve Him, and that will be expressed at some level, and that's where the works come from, okay? So, yeah, the... Right here's... Yeah, uh, the terrific, too, has to do with us loving God supremely and others as we want to love ourselves. And then when we talk about the Ten Commandments, uh, go to Colossians chapter 2. You um, know, one of my jokes is uh, that I still use is that the problem with the uh, Reader's Digest Bible is they changed the Ten Commandments to the Seven Suggestions, and the Diggs who had to leave, and i tell you what, I have, uh, Janet Deeg is really a neat, neat person, and Dr. Deeg is pretty cool, too, uh, but her father uh, is Roman Catholic, and uh, he, he didn't really like TBF very much, So, uh, to, and they're, they're caregivers for him. So to honor her dad, they take him to Mass, come here, stay as long as they can without irritating Dad because Dad doesn't like to wait around after a Mass to get picked up. Okay? But uh, I remember, you know, I've, I've had that joke. Watch out. You know, Amanda, there's all good translations out there, but watch out for the Reader's Digest because they changed the Ten Commandments to some Suggestions. And then, you know, after I said that multiple times, Janet found a Reader's Digest Bible at a garage sale brought it to me, because she's very much in the truth. You know, she's got to be exactly right. I mean, they're German, you know, what I you expect? Um, well, he is, but she said, I've got a reader's Bible, and there's there's Ten Commandments in here. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> but they still water them down. But, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Ten Commandments. Uh, here's the thing, and let me give you short versions of the- theology in three minutes. The whole story of the Bible, the whole program of God for humanity is predicated on these promises, this covenant he enters into with Abraham uh, that revolves around Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Jewish people. And you've got a, a Bible with an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? You know what testament means? It means covenant, okay? Old covenant was you've got one theocratic nation, they're supposed to walk the walk. They're supposed to shine the light, and the world's supposed to come to them. And they depict spirituality on training wheels, and a lot of stuff they're doing is pointing to the coming of the Messiah, who in fact is the Savior of the world. In the aftermath of that, in fact, at the Lord's Supper, he said, hey, we're going to have a blood covenant instituted tomorrow at the cross, and this represents my blood. This represents the new covenant. We're going from training wheels, take the training wheels off, we don't believe in a promised Messiah. We believe in a provided Messiah on this side of the cross. We're under the New Covenant. So here's the thing. At one level, New Testament believers are in no way under any of the Old Testament law, period, over and out in my understanding. Cross the end of the law for all who believe. However, this is a complicated issue. I mean, Christians will differ on some of the details. But I'm pretty radical about this. On the other hand, when you look at the Old Testament law, guess what you got? You've got Moral provisions, you've got ritual provisions, and you've got civil criminal provisions for a a nation, it's a theocratic nation. Uh, Steve is not under uh, Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus when it talks about civil criminal law. You're under Oklahoma State, U.S. federal law. Okay, Rituals, the central ritual of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, was worship at a tabernacle, portable tent, temple, permanent building, and focusing on the Atonement. right? There's no Christians anywhere that sacrifice animals since the crucifixion, I'm aware of. How come? Because we all understand the ritual part of the Old Testament law was pointing to a reality and anticipating it, and now we've got the reality we don't need the ritual anymore, okay? Now, you've got Civil and criminal aspects of Old Testament law. You got ritual aspects, temple sacrifices, animal sacrifices. You got moral provisions. Guess what? Uh, murder didn't become off the chart at Sinai. Adultery didn't become immoral at Sinai. It just gets codified in the law. But the moral provisions of the law predate it. They're gnomic, right? So we don't sacrifice animals. We don't have a temple anymore. We don't have the Levitical priesthood anymore. We don't have to follow. We have to follow our Oklahoma federal law, not Levitical civil criminal law. But the kind of moral prescriptions that predated the law that were included in the law continue. They're timeless. They're gnomic. And I would say nine of the Ten Commandments are in that category. But there's one, in my opinion, that's not the seventh day uh, Sabbath. Look at Colossians two, really quickly here. Colossians two, uh, verse thirteen. When you were dead in your circumcisions and the in your transgressions and the uncircumcision as it were spiritually of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having cancelled it out, having nailed it to the cross. That's where it got paid for. Therefore, verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, including kosher regulations, as Peter after Acts 10, or in respect to festivals or new moons or even Sabbath days that were an integral part of the Old Testament law, but were shadows, were anticipation, were ritual uh, that now uh, pale in the light of the reality of the risen Savior, things which... Uh, are and were a mere shadow of what is to come, what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, let no one defraud you of your prize. That's a New Testament Christian liberty. Delighting in self-abasement. If it hurts, it's got to be good. If it tastes good, it's got to be bad kind of thing. Uh, Extra-biblical content from angels or visions, uh, which keeps us from holding fast to the head, uh, which is obviously Jesus Christ. So I, I would say... Uh, if somebody said, man, you don't have a doctrinal statement, that's dangerous. Uh, what do you people believe? Let's well, say we believe in the seven essentials, who God is, who Christ is, who we are, what Christ did, what we must do to be saved, what Christ will do, and what the Word is. Well, how about your behavior? You guys are antinomian. You have no rules. You have no laws. Yeah, we're supposed to love God supremely and others as ourselves, and then we... uh obey the moral procurations of Scripture, including 9 of the Ten Commandments. Not the Seventh-day Sabbath, though, because uh, as Paul says, don't let anybody judge you there. The early church pretty quickly after Acts 10 figured out the New Testament was new wine and new wineskins, not new wine and old wineskins, and there were some paradigm-changing things like going from Seventh-day Sabbath to first day, day, Lord's Day Resurrection, that uh Blew a lot of people's minds, but I think it's the right thing to do. So, in those essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, what are non-essentials? Like non-essential government workers. Don't you hate that phrase? We're going to close down the government, and we're eighteen, you know, what is it, tr- trillion in the hole? But that's okay. I'm glad Congress doesn't know there's a number higher than trillion, aren't you? But I mean, that's just me. But uh, we're going to close down the government, and all the non-essential workers don't have to come this week. You know I'm saying. They're not essential. Get rid of them, right? Let them get a real job, but that's just me. Um, You know, what's the non-essential things? Well, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians and Romans, the non-essential issue they were debating was meat offered to idols, which doesn't come up a lot in modern America. Uh, For us, it'd be an issue like movies. Let me say it that way. Here's Here's the way this works. Within the clear doctrinal and moral bounds of Scripture, God gives us liberty to make decisions. Of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat except for that one. You mean anything in that garden I can eat anytime I want to? Yeah. You don't have to ask me. Just eat the one you want, okay? So within the clear bounds of Scripture we are called and we're responsible to make decisions. We have liberty to make decisions, and my decisions on those issues may be different than Nancy's. Okay, And basically on the meat offered to idols issue, Paul said, I know if you live in Rome and I know if you live in Corinth, the only meat you can get has been butchered and offered to an idol, to a false Greek pagan god, as a religious service ritual. But I also know if you want to buy that meat, they put a lot of it on sale at a supermarket right behind the temple, and you don't have to bow down to Zeus to eat the meat. You, but you know the meat has been offered to idols. That being true in all the large cities in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, there were some Christians who said, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian now. I don't believe in those false gods. I can't eat meat that I know was offered to idols, even though I wasn't there, didn't see it, and don't believe it, right? And some Christians felt like that like just, it was a bridge too far. They didn't want to do that. Other Christians said, you know what? I don't believe in Zeus, but Zeus doesn't even exist. And I don't go to that temple. I'm not supporting it directly. I'm just buying meat at a supermarket. And i got to have my steak, you know, kind of thing. So there's a debate both in the Corinthian church and the Roman church. And Paul basically says, you decide what your personal convictions are going to be there. If your conscience, a red light goes on when you eat meat because you know it's offered to idols, don't eat it. Become a vegetarian. There's a lot of other benefits of being a vegetarian, too. I'm not going there, but I know some people who do, and God bless you, you know. So, uh, but that's Christian liberty. And that blows Americans' minds because most churches have a list of rules, and the pastor is a custodian of the rules, and he tells you what you're supposed to do and think about everything. And around here, we treat you like adults, and we'll say, Meats offered to idols or movies. My, it's funny because there's been some crazy movies out there now, and I know the movie about Is it unbreakable, unstoppable, unbroken? Yeah, I know I get it wrong. But, uh, yeah, I saw that trailer and, uh, during Christmas season, I thought, yeah, it looks like a good movie and, and stuff. And so we're probably going to go to that. But my, you know, there are some Christians that are real, I would say, pickier than God who just say, we're not going to any movies under any circumstances because that industry is very corrupt and I don't want to support it. And as I've often said, I respect that position. And there are probably some people in the room that feel that way, and I think it's a very uh, respectable position for a believer, but I don't agree with it. My, my view, even though I've like, never gone to the movies, but I've, I've got a lot of freedom for movies, I just don't use it. I'm busy, you know? Um, watching the Golf Channel, usually. But uh, even though I think I've got the freedom to go to movies, uh, in fact, I think I've got the freedom to do it, the liberty, and frankly, my policy, which I don't follow through on consistently, But when they do make a decent movie, Unbreakable, Unbroken. I'm getting closer. (laughs) Movie like Unbroken. I haven't seen it, heard a lot of good things about it. I know they watered down his testimony some at the end, but they don't deny it. So Unbroken, right? To me, you make a movie like that that has a hero fighting the Japanese during World War II. I'm not against Japanese people, but during World War II, I am. They attacked us, you know? Uh kind of stuff. you got to be careful. Uh, Kojin Hotai, wherever you are, he probably listens to this stuff. But you, you get my point. I, I feel like rather than boycotting all movies because the industry is corrupt, which it is, when they actually make a decent movie, let's go and spend some money and see it because that's the only thing they understand, Amanda. The only way you're going to vote to have them make more movies like this with the Americans are the good guys, you know, kind of thing, boom, is if you pay for it. If you vote for it, how do you vote for it, Jeff? by buying a ticket, or renting it, or whatever you do. So, in those kind of areas, we have these principles. Okay? Three principles. It's easy. We've, we, I've done whole messages on this, and I'm almost at, at, out of time anyway. But here's the thing, three things you do, Savannah. Number one, you need greater, uh, hammer out as unto the Lord. I think I got my my thingy wrong, but uh, I won't take the, Rick used to get mad at me when I changed stuff on the fly, so I won't do it. But as unto the Lord, hammer out your own convictions. Now, here's the thing. I don't want teenagers to do this sometimes. we got Christian liberty in a lot of areas. I'm going to get as close to the line. Wherever sin is, I'm going to get as close to that line as possible and enjoy my Christian liberty. And I would say, that's not a good way to come up with your convictions. I would say, just honestly, hammer out your conviction in these areas as unto the Lord, number one, in the areas where you've got liberty, where there's no direct, kind of you're applying general principles to specific questions. Principle two, respect the right of other, other believers to come up with their own convictions, even if they differ from yours. And don't try to talk them out of it. Somebody is happy not going to movies, I'm not going to try to talk them into going to see movies. Uh, I think there are some movies, just based on their content, are objectionable and acceptable. But I'm, I'm talking about, you know, decent, something that's decent. And I don't have time to define decent, but trust me, I've got a, a definition. Uh, so hammer out your convictions, respect other believers' rights to have different personal convictions. Here, PC is personal convictions. And then live out your personal convictions in love. You don't flaunt your liberty in front of somebody you might offend, and you don't want to cause a weaker believer who's not sure where to draw the line to stumble by your example either, and a lot we could say about that. But we're talking about uh, in the essentials, unity and the non-essentials, liberty, and that's how we apply liberty. And then he says, in all things love, here's where my bottom line, here's how I'm going to uh, finish up today. TBF is not about getting people to do religious things so we can look, look let's hold up a hoop so Sean can jump through it. Here's a religious thing hoop. He just jumped through it. Hey, I'm doing my job. You know? A lot of places you got to do that. If you're in a ministry, you got to have hoops. You got people jumping through, doing religious things. Everybody's happy. I think we're more interested in seeing the work of God becoming active in people, and a lot of that may be behind the scenes. I'm sure uh, somebody like Katie prays a lot for TBF and her pastor, and nobody sees that. But boy, we'd be in, in bad shape without it, right? On the other hand, <laughs> don't you hate it when preachers do that? We're not about you just showing up for services. On the other hand, we don't really schedule stuff we don't think is pretty important, you know. If I didn't think Wednesday night was worth doing it, I wouldn't come either, you know. So, uh, everything we're trying to do here is designed to glorify God, edifies people, but it can only happen to the extent we're pl- possibly plugged in. So let me finish where I finished on the handout, the yellow page this week. The yellow pages are, are leaving, but we still have yellow pages here, so. Now this is our game plan, okay? Now, as the Ravens found out yesterday, uh, they had a good game plan, but they, they, they still lost the game. It's a tough place to play, and, and I was I was pulling for them myself. But you can have a it's, – it's hard to play a good game without a good game plan, but you have a great game plan, as any coach will tell you. And if the players don't execute the game plan, you're still not going to get anywhere. So a biblical game plan is nice, but we don't want to be proud about it or act like we're the only ones who think like this because we're not but it only works to the extent we work it. And so I'll conclude with this convicting question, you know, for the 26th time. this 26th time I've done this, I think. You know, if everybody else at TBF were exactly like me, and of course I really mean exactly like you, then what kind of shape would this place be in on your typical Wednesday night, your typical Sunday morning, uh, your typical anything that relates to you that we do? Uh, in your giving, in your praying, in your attitudes, right? Uh, that kind of thing. So I hope that's, uh, uh, helps you come up with your own elevator pitch for TBF, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us this year to really be excited about the prospect as you give us life and opportunity this year, uh, to walk with you and to contribute to the one thing, the one organization that Jesus is building on this earth. He works through a lot of organizations, lots of billions of individuals, 2.1 last time we counted noses of us out there, Christians. But uh, the one thing that the Lord Jesus has expressly said he's going to build is his church. So help us to be as excited about the church as we are about uh, the Kiwanis Club or Chisholm Trail Soccer Association or the Boys Club or, or whatever it is this year. It helped us to realize that uh, we've got a biblical target, but we're going to have to aim at it and make an effort to hit it, or the target is essentially pragmatically very useless. So I thank you for these who are here. Uh, I thank you for the hearts of the people. You've got to be a little, little tough to be a tbf effort because we're not quite exactly like what the kind of standard denominational format is, and, and yet you've blessed us. And you've given us some very special people, and I thank you for each one who's here today, who's embraced this thing and wants to make it work. Uh, of course, we pray for anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, recognize their, their guilt, their, their need for salvation, for forgiveness before a holy and righteous God. And by your grace, open their heart to see and believe that Jesus came, died to pay their debt, rose again from the dead, and will give them eternal life if they'll trust him for it, if they'll put their faith in him. And that's our invitation. That's our core message today and every day. Uh, thank you again, Father, for instructing us, giving is a clear target. Help us to be excited about trying to hit it this year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.